And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. That we can, and so help us God, we will make America great again. What's up, guys? Welcome to another episode of the No Gimmicks Podcast. I'm your humble host, as always, Brady Leonard. Hopefully you guys are having a great week. I'm sorry this episode's being uploaded a little bit late today, but uh, hey, man, doing uh, doing what I can. I had a guest uh, have to cancel short notice due to, due to unforeseen circumstances, but uh, my friend Nate Madden from uh, The Blaze uh, pinch hit uh, for me and uh, came on at very short notice. I really appreciate him, and it's always a good good time talking to Nate. I think you guys will really enjoy it. Uh, before I get to Nate, uh, I have to uh, remind you guys, if you haven't already, please follow us on Twitter at NoGimmicksPod. And guys, I'm sure you're already subscribed to this podcast that uh, that you love so much and listen to faithfully every Monday and Wednesday. But if you haven't subscribed, please subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Google Play. If you're on iTunes, please give us a five-star rating and a good review. I'd really appreciate that. All right, without further ado, here is my chat with Nate Madden. All right, guys, we're here with Nate Madden, congressional correspondent for The Blaze. Nate, thanks so much for coming on, man, at short notice, even. You're really uh, bailing me out today. I appreciate it, brother. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's congressional recess week, so my schedule's a lot freer than it usually is in the afternoon, so I'm happy to help out where I can, and I'm happy to be on again. Absolutely. The audience always loves hearing from you. Um, I want to kick off the show today just breaking down some of the wild um, proposals from from 2020 Democrats. The 2020 field is locked in a a mortal struggle with one another for who can say the dumbest shit in public. Um, And we'll, we'll go by we'll go through it point by point. But here's a partial list of the policy proposals from Democrats running for president in 2020. Just a partial list. You know, obviously, full-term or even post-birth abortion on demand. Um, abolish the Electoral College. Pack the Supreme Court. Lower the voting age to 16. Confiscate guns. Ban cars. Ban airplanes. Kill all the cows because they can't, you know, they wouldn't be able to fart if they're dead. Reparations for slavery. And the full government takeover of the means of production and distribution, since none of them will actually say that they're capitalists. So where do we even start here, man? <laughs> you know, let's 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 go for the the... I think the biggest target on my uh, on my radar today is uh, the electoral college stuff. I just wrote a piece about this over at Conservative Review, you know, I, and I wrote it because I'm getting tired of defending the electoral college. And let me explain why I say that. It's not because I don't believe in it. I think it it exists for very good reason. I think we need to keep it. I'm tired of making historical and structural arguments to people who are apathetic towards the history of the founding and actually want New York, California, and you know the 57 counties that Hillary won to run roughshod over the rest of the country, right? I, I, I'm I, I've been running up against this block, and I've, I've been making this argument. You know, we've been having some version of this electoral college argument since the day after the 2016 election in this form, and it's driven by anti-Trump animus in its latest form, and it's 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 getting a lot of a lot of steam from extra anti-Trump animus than it has in the past. And you're starting to see, you know, Elizabeth Warren's behind it. Uh, but, uh, Robert Francis O'Rourke got behind it uh, either yesterday or a couple of days ago this morning. Uh, Kamala Harris jumped on that train. It's going to become a, lit- a litmus test. 
I have, you know, the, the, the challenge though, for those of us who actually believe that this thing has a purpose, the challenge for those of us who think that it has merit, that it should have been there and it should stay there. And that we should have this balance between the urban and the rural, between big states and little states. The challenge isn't making the arguments that we all picked up in high school history, right? Those are easy. The challenge is convincing people who are angry at Trump, many people whose politics are singularly focused on Donald Trump and a system they blame for getting him elected. The challenge is convincing those people that people who other people, their fellow citizens who don't share their culture, their political views, their worldview, their experience, all this other stuff still deserve a say in the process of picking a president. And I am open to suggestions on how to do that, because honestly, I'm stumped. <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah, you, that pretty much covers it. Obviously, the Electoral College is enshrined in the Constitution. There's no way in hell. Um, that you know you can get a, a super a two thirds supermajority in both houses of Congress or a supermajority of state legislatures to get rid of the electoral college. That is a pipe dream from the Democrats. It, it's just really funny. It these people are just not taking their loss in 2016 very well. No, no. And, but they are. We already had another election where they did really well. 2018 was a wave election for the Democrats, and you saw some Democrats. Uh, after they failed to retake the Senate last year, saying, "Oh, we should just abolish the Senate <laughs> because it's you know, yeah, because because uh, it's you know contrary to democracy or whatever." You know, you'll you know, always I, I, find anytime Democrats don't win something, you'll always find a thousand hot takes at, at you know either Slate or the New York Times opinion page or somewhere else, you know, saying that we need to abolish whatever it is that we couldn't win. We need to fundamentally change whatever it is that we couldn't win. And the thing that bugs me the most, and Guy Benson pointed this out at Town Hall, and I didn't think about it in these terms until I read Guy's piece, but it it really irks me. After, you know, when Trump came onto the scene, after Inauguration Day, and he started shaking things up and changing policies and, and shifting things around, and, you know, just by his own persona is more, you know, more bellicose and everything. And I would explain, you know, these, these, these things X, Y, and Z that he's doing, they're not unconstitutional. He's there. They're completely within the power of the president. And then I, I lost count of the number of times that I heard in response. Oh, but you know, we don't just have those, those constitutional back, those structures guarding our public officials. We also have norms. We have norms. We have norms. And right. now we've reached this point where the art, they, they can no longer make any claim to trying to defend these norms, Right. We want to either abolish the Senate when we can't win it over. We want to, you know, destroy the electoral college because, because God knows, you know, we're not going to get people out in, you know, out in rural America to actually vote Democrat ever again because we've gone cuckoo bananas on everything else. We want to pack the Supreme Court and let sixteen-year-olds vote. Don't ever lecture me about <laughs> norms again, ever again. Yeah, I mean, look, it's not normal that uh, we have a president that tweets all the time and, and stuff like that. But uh, if we're talking about who's destroying the, the norms, uh, it's clearly not Republicans. It's just the, the contrast between how Republicans and Democrats handle a loss. It's just astounding. I mean, when the Democrats lose anything, their their response is burn it all down. When, when conservatives lose, and look, we conservatives, not necessarily Republicans, but conservatives, we're used to losing. That's the thing. Well, yeah. I li you, you live, you know, by, you know, just outside of D.C. I mean, you're used, especially on a local and state level, you're oh used to gosh. losing all the time. I live in Lucas County, Ohio, the, the bluest county in Ohio. I mean, we, we haven't had a Republican mayor in 
at some before I was born, thirty so something years, and I've, we haven't had a Republican uh, uh, congressman representing my district since the seventies. When when we lose, like we're sad for a day, and then we you know turn on a football game or have sex with our wives or do something, <laughs> turn on Game of Thrones, like what? Like we get over it and we move on. Democrats can't. Like they still haven't moved on from 2016. It is just astounding to me. Well, yeah, because I, again, I talk about this all the time. When government, you know, and I, this isn't prescriptive for everybody, and not everybody on the left has the same monolithic has the monolithic worldview. But whether they realize it or not, a lot to most people on the left, they have put government as the you know that is the center of of their worldview, right? That is the agent right. by which this grand stream of human progress actually moves forward. So when a bellica, you know, when, you know, when a, when a kind of a blowhard guy from Queens who says things about immigrants and, you know, transgender troops and other thing else that you don't like is in the oval office, like that is, that is an affront to your worldview on a cosmic level. That's why so many of these people, like you can't just turn on a ball game and forget about it because this is so important because control of government is so critical. Conservatives want to control, get control of government so they can get it out of their way and focus on the things that matter. You know, right. capital T, cap, you know, capital T, capital T, capital M. You know, they, they want to get the government out of the way so they can focus on on building a livelihood and building a community and going to church and raising their kids the way they want to. They don't want to get control of it to use it to force a view of progress on a bunch of other people. You know, that's the difference. And that's why I, you know, that at least from my perspective, the left loses elections a lot harder than the right. And, you know, we are used to losing elections, you know, and, you know, the left gets mad. And some kids, you know, put on black masks and go out and break things. And, you know, you have the politicians come back and they want to change absolutely everything about the way we do elections and who gets <laughs> to vote and everything. And the right, you know, we do what you said. And then we also start getting a bunch of the fundraising emails that say, you know, we're just, you know, next election, we'll get them, send more money, send more right. money. Oh, my gosh. Right. And the never ending send more money messaging that we get from the Republican Party. <laughs> One day we'll control everything. Yeah, especially if you're guys like us and have given out your email to just one too many politicians. Oh my! God. <laughs> and campaign staffers. You no, know, yeah, I keep uh... saying, I keep saying, as a journalist and you as a as a as a podcast host, there ought to be an option to unsubscribe from unsolicited emails and press release lists that you know that lets you unsubscribe with extreme prejudice. Right. Because <laughs> just, just like, I never signed up for half of what's in my inbox. I mean, that would save a lot of hours weekly. It, it truly would. I'm, I'm all in favor of that. Um, I, off that, that clown car, that insane list of, of proposals that I went through, the one that's most concerning to me is the court packing. Uh, because, like I said, the, the Electoral College is enshrined in the Constitution. You need a super majority in both houses of, of Congress. That's never going to happen, at least not in our lifetime. But court packing is not explicitly banned constitutionally and no. but, well to to the audience members that maybe don't understand court packing this comes up every handful of years as well not to the same extent as we're seeing now but court packing goes back to fdr in the 30s when he was trying to get his new deal uh passed he knew that most of these socialist uh policies were, were unconstitutional and he knew that the supreme court would 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 strike it down more most likely most if not all of the new deal the elements of the new deal and so he threatened the Supreme Court justices and he said, look, if you don't rubber stamp the New Deal, 
I'm going to pack the court. I'm going to expand the court, double, triple the amount of justices, and I'll put in justices who will do whatever the hell I want. So essentially to save the republic, the Supreme Court capitulated to FDR just to just to stop him from packing the court. They said, fine, we'll do whatever you want. So that that's the last time this has been tried or at least threatened. Um, Representative Mark Green, I believe— uh, Tennessee of Tennessee's seventh yeah. congressional district yeah. uh, is introducing a constitutional amendment that would forever limit uh, Supreme Court justices to nine. I I believe, and I, not to sound too alarmist, but I believe if tyranny does come to America, it, most likely it would be in the form of court packing. The Supreme Court, all the courts, but especially the Supreme Court, already has far too much power, way more power than the founders ever envisioned. Um, and as of now, the Constitution does not limit the amount of justices to nine. And I don't even want to think about the 20 transgendered communists that a president Bernie Sanders would appoint to the Supreme court. So I think this is, this is my biggest issue out of, out of the list that I just mentioned. This one actually scares me more than the rest of them because it's something that the Democrats could actually feasibly accomplish. Uh, good Lord willing, they never do, but I think we should all get behind Mark green and really push for this. I think this should, this should be a top priority for not just conservatives, but all reasonable Americans. Well, so the thing that gets me right uh, about judicial stuff, and you're right. I mean, look at the way that we treat members of the judicial branch. We don't treat the judicial branch as co-equal, even no. close. We, we there are overlords. There are overlords. Yes. We wait. Like we wait outside the Supreme Court for our overlords to hand down their judgment on us. Like it's it's creep. It's like this weird like they're like it's Greek mythology or something. Like these, it comes yeah, down it's, from it's Olympus. Ridiculous. It comes right. down from Olympus, right. and you know this is how it shall be now and forever until we change our minds. Maybe <laughs> at some point in the future and reverse this. But we're taking it completely out. You know, we're taking these political questions, and they did it with abortion. They did it with the Griswold v. Connecticut contraception. Every major social fight over right. the last, you know, 60, 70 years wasn't won legislatively. It was won by these black-robed overlords. So, you know, we're not talking. The reason it should scare people is not simply because of what it means the Democrats do. It's because of the way that people think of the judicial branch. They already right. think of these folks as these legal overlords, these grand high priests of, of the law. Right. And it also points out to a stark contrast to me. Democrats are willing to talk about court packing. They're willing to have this conversation and, and look at article three of the constitution and say, look, we can put, you know, Bart, you know, unless somebody actually puts an amendment on there, article three grants Congress the power to, to put as many people on the Supreme Court if we want, if we want to put, if we want to make it one guy, you know, one guy with one clerk with a card table in the basement of the Capitol, they can do that. <laughs> That's the right. power Congress has. Right. You know, if they want to make it, you know, if they actually do want to build a, 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 a replica of Mount Olympus and put 20 of these guys up there, they can do the same thing as well. But they have that power. They have the power also to limit everything but the original jurisdiction of the Supreme Court. My colleague Daniel Horowitz uh, wrote an entire book about this. Right. But Republicans will not have that conversation, at least not many and not out loud, not to the degree that Democrats will talk about court packing. I've never heard uh, at least a serious Republican talk about court packing. Imagine if President Trump was talking about court packing right now. Can you imagine? <laughs> wall to wall. I mean, CNN would, would melt down. I mean, it would, they would legitimately like see, they would their server like the rooms scenic... would actually melt down. They would be off the air for like five seconds. They'd have to go to the backups. You know, they're like you come back and like, 
you know, it's it's just, you know, things are on fire like that. That's when the minute Donald Trump mentions court packing, things will catch fire. And, and you, you that, that that's the level of crazy we're talking about. It would be the news version of of Daenerys Targaryen burning the uh, Lannister armies with her dragon. Like that would be like <laughs> CNN living that out in real time. Like it would yeah. be absolutely insane, but it's totally normal. I mean, journalists aren't pushing back. Elizabeth Warren, I believe, is the first Democrat to come out and say, yeah, we should pack the court. And then Beto O'Rourke agreed with her. And the journalists asking them these questions are giving them no pushback. They're like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. That's totally normal. Totally normal thing to propose. Yeah, because I mean, there's spidey no sense. Don't, like. That's the thing is that like being a frontline journalist when you're getting this stuff, there's some things that based on your worldview and what you experience, there are things that will set off your spidey sense and things that will not. And we, we know like we can look at the statistics and know that the vast number of reporters in most of these newsrooms are, you know, they either they either are registered Democrats. They would be they, they support Democrats. You know, you can look at their their statistics that prove all this. So something like that coming from Elizabeth Warren is not going to set off a, a mainstream journalist spidey sense in the same way that it would coming from Donald Trump or Ted Cruz or Mike Lee, right? That's right. It, it's all a matter of worldview and spidey sense when it comes to that stuff. But yeah, if the minute one of those guys mentions court packing, the minute one of the, those guys talks about jurisdiction stripping on immigration issues, talks about jurisdiction stripping on abortion issues, we will see things catch fire. With court packing, I, look, everything politicians, not everything, most things politicians do and propose are extremely short-sighted, right? We, we know this. We know this by now. It's all for votes. 999 all, times out of 1,000, yes. Yes, it's short-sighted. But we need this amendment. Th- this proposed amendment by uh, Representative Green, we need it. I mean, where would it stop? If, if, if the Democrats packed the court, they put 15 you know, ridiculous leftist blue haired lesbians on the court. And then what happens the next time? I mean, look, yeah, the Republican puts, you know, 45 Clarence Thomases and Antolin Scalia's in there. I mean, do we have 5,000 Supreme Court justices at the end of the day? I mean, for the love of God, one, you you know, you're, you're, you cover Capitol Hill. Does this, it's been a long time since we've passed a constitutional amendment. I think this one has a chance. I, I really, truly do. We need a supermajority, 67% 67% of both houses of Congress. I think we could get there. I think there are enough reasonable Democrats left in Congress that could get behind this. I could see even a Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi getting behind it. Do you think this has a chance? It's always Chuck, hard to say. Chuck it's... Schumer's not a stupid man, and he's not a—Nancy Pelosi is a leftist, I would say. I don't think Chuck Schumer is. I, I don't know. If you even look at the Democratic leadership— there is a little bit of brain power left. They're not all Rashida Tlaib and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. The thing that I people think... overlook, like for, for their progressive views, Chuck Schumer, Nancy Pelosi, or well, Nancy Pelosi is a good politician. Chuck Schumer is a halfway decent politician. Right, right. And, you know, like separate that from their views. They're effective at what they do, which is why they're party leadership right now. All right. And, but the complicating factor for anything like this and trying to pull off, you know, moderate Democrats, blue dogs, whatever you want to call them. The difficulty for anything like this right now is just the sheer amount of energy coming out of the party's progressive wing, right? This is similar to 2010, 2011, 2012, where the worst possible thing a Republican could have ever been called was a rhino. That term started bubbling up from the Tea Party movement. That's the kind of dynamic that you're seeing on the left right now with all this far left energy coming up. Right. So I I don't know how many Democrats you would actually be able to pull off for something like this, so long as there is that much 
progressive energy behind the idea of court packing. If there, if this actually does become a full-fledged debate over this proposed amendment. What if we took the route of a convention of states and trying to get a supermajority of state legislatures to pass this amendment? I think there is easily 40 states that would pass this. Oh, definitely. Yeah. You call an Article 5 convention. If you go that route, that that's a much, you know, it's seems like almost everything about Article 5 conventions is theoretical, but I think you'd have a much easier route of doing that than you would trying to pull off Democratic votes in either house right now. Right. Yeah, I agree. I hope it gets done. I hope everybody gets behind uh, Mark Green. I think this is definitely worthwhile. Moving on, one thing that's really confounding about the, the 2020 Democratic field isn't just that they're supporting the most ridiculous socialist policies imaginable. Both parties in the primary process, when they're running against an incumbent, you know, go to the hard right or the hard left. That's not surprising. But the fact that they're embracing wildly unpopular positions is, is what's really astounding to me. I mean, they're calling for abortion on demand all the way up to to full term or even, you know, post, you know, fourth trimester abortions, if you will, just killing a a, a child. Um, Eighty percent of the electorate wants abortions banned after the first trimester. Eighty percent. And we don't really have any polling data, at least that I could find, that really explains how people feel about, you know, full term or partial birth or post birth abortions. But I have to imagine less than five percent of the country wants uh, a baby that uh, survived an abortion to be slaughtered. 80% want it banned after the first trimester. Like, th- it's so strange. It, wh- why take this position? Only 17% of voters want the voting age lowered. Right. Why, it's... Ta- why, why take these wildly unpopular positions? It's so weird. It's so strange. I don't even know what they're thinking at this point. <sighs> I, 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 I don't know. <laughs> I've been trying to figure this out for weeks, I right? I know, man. I like know. Y- you send out a test balloon and the test balloon gets absolutely it's shot down, like not just yeah. shot down. Like they, they take a howitzer to the test balloon and then you're <laughs> sending out the same test balloon at the same place. You know, it's like, you know, it's kind of like, all right, on the right, most, almost everybody is at least nominally pro second amendment. Right. But you have a hard time convincing anybody outside of the most, you know, like the most hardcore Second Amendment supporting libertarian folks that people should be able to privately own howitzers, right? Like, you know, I would, I would be in, I would be in that camp. Yes, I, like I, I, I agree. Uh, <laughs> for, for for the record, you know, it's like I. It's yeah, this is going to come back to bite me at some point, but you know, like, <laughs> on a philosophical level, I agree, you know, people should be able to have the, the kinds of tools that keep, that keep governments from, you know, oppressing them. Right. That is a hard sell to right. the middle, right? right. Like, for, like forget, you know, forget automatic weapons, forget bump stocks, forget anything else. You know, it's as if we were, if the Republican party just jumped like five stages and decided we are going to run on privately armed howitzers and we expect to be able we expect to get more you know like support outside of our own ideological wing right that's what the democratic party is doing on abortion right now you're not going to be able to find people in the middle you're not going to be able to find a lot of people who actually support this who aren't just outright grossed out by it in the same way that if a republican candidate got up for president tomorrow and said i want to run on privately owned howitzers it would freak a lot of people the hell out Right. right. 
that's that's the inverse of what we're dealing with, and it makes no sense. But this train just keeps a rolling. I live in a very blue area, and most of my friends are Democrats. Most of my friends are pretty far left. I have friends that are just open socialists. And I've asked, after the, the partial birth and post-birth abortion issue came up out of uh, Virginia, New York, and, and Rhode Island last month or the month before, I think January, I asked a handful of my hardcore leftist friends, what do you guys think about that? They're all horrified. I didn't find one. Like, there's nobody. Nobody nobody believes this except for Democratic politicians. It, it's absolutely insane. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the lowering the voting age to 16 is another thing. Only 17% of, of the electorate wants to lower the voting age. I, Look, nobody, have you ever met a 16-year-old? Does anybody remember what they did when they were 16? I was just trying to figure out how to get a girlfriend, and I was drag racing my friends in my 1990 Plymouth Laser. Okay, that that's what I was focused on at 16. I, uh, I, I, I think they should raise involved. the vote. For the record, I think yeah, I was well, I was I'm I was in a band. supposed to have it, but it was involved. Yeah, well, I was in a rock and roll band. Well, still am in a rock and roll band. So yeah, I was parlaying the fact that I was in a band to get like free shots at the bars and stuff at 16. <laughs> so that was my main focus, not deciding who should be president. I really didn't give a shit about that. But it's it's like. It, that it's never going to happen. Like it, it obviously we're not going to lower the voting age to 16, but just the fact that the Democrats aren't hiding the ball anymore. Yeah. And I think it's safe to say that. On, yeah, like, go ahead. Sorry. Out of any, like out of any high school class of 16 year olds, there's probably like three people <laughs> I would trust to vote. Right. There's three people out of every, at every single, you know, high school group of 16 year olds in America. You know, they're the people who don't, you know, waste their use like we did, but Maybe the most hilarious proposal from a Democratic presidential candidate is from Robert Francis O'Rourke. <laughs> and that proposal... <laughs> the floor is lava? <laughs> yeah, the floor is lava. Yeah, why are they always standing on things? They're I don't know why he's standing always standing on, standing on, on a table. He's standing on a table. He's standing on a counter. He looks like the floor is lava. And somebody went on Twitter and pointed this out yesterday, and I, I laughed for a straight 10 minutes. But you were saying, sir. I mean, it's yeah, somebody in the audience has to get up on a desk and say, oh, Captain, my Captain, you know, society <laughs> style. But... His proposal to his his supporters was for them to quote shape his candidacy for him. So he he's proposing that people just tell him what to say and he'll say it. He's admitting, hey, I have no principles. I'm not putting forth any ideas of substance, no substance what? at all. He's openly telling people, just tell me what to do and I'll do it. That's it. That's his proposal for his candidacy. And look, I there's a lot of there's been a lot of politicians that are like the quote unquote empty suit. You know, like they kind of they they change but you their never minds on everything. It. You never say it out loud. And usually, like the empty suit, it's like a guy like Barack Obama who didn't really have a record, didn't really have a voting record in the Senate, and people kind of projected their their values on him. Like the moderate Democrats would say he was a moderate, the leftists yeah. would say he was a leftist because you couldn't disprove any of it because he didn't really have a record. But this guy's saying, "Look, I have no record, I have no opinions. Just tell me what to do." I've never I've never seen anything like this before in politics. Like this is just. It, it's, I'm confounded. Yeah, I mean that's, <laughs> it's it's kind of the ultimate, the ultimate politician for the crowdfunding social media generation, right? right. It's kind of like you just went on a Twitter AMA and said, you know what, you know Twitter AMA said, what's your platform? And then we're just gonna <laughs> put all that crap into a bowl and just mix the hell out of it, and then you know, we're gonna we're gonna come up with a platform based on it. If you're to be the quintessential social media candidate, stop, you know, live streaming yourself you know, making chili or whatever the hell you're doing in your kitchen. And, you know, like, follow, follow that example, because if he's, he's basically just crowdfunding a platform at this point. 
Do you think he's a serious candidate? Beto O'Rourke? Definitely. I think people take him very, very seriously. I think that he out fundraised in his first four hours than everybody else in the field. I, you know, you know, say we can make a bunch of criticisms comparing him to, to Barack Obama and all this other stuff. And like, oh, he's just, you know, he's the pretty face. He's the empty suit. Barack Obama won twice. You know, he was a lot, he was a lot brighter than Beto O'Rourke and, and, you know, being well, the first. This is true. This is true. Yeah. And, you know, and he was also facing, you know, the, the most challenging person, the two, the most that he faced in the primary way was Hillary Clinton and and John Edwards, who completely combusted. If anyone remembers <laughs> that, like people don't remember John Edwards. Don't remember the John Edwards runner. falling the hell apart on the campaign trail. Hey, don't knock up your mistress and then pay her nine hundred thousand dollars when your wife has breast cancer. When your wife has breast. See, these are just bad things. If just word of the wise, if you're running for office, don't do that. You know, like first off, don't have a mistress. But you know, if that's yeah. too high of a bar for politicians these days. You know, at least be smart about it. Um, <laughs> But so who, who who's your front runner for the Democratic nomination? I I've always said Biden, and I as of now I'm still standing by that. I think that uh, Bernie Sanders is a little past his prime. I think he's going to run into kind of Ron Paul's problems in 2008 versus 2012. Yeah. So, you know he was like the new thing kind of, even though he was old <laughs> as hell then, <laughs> and never gained the same amount of traction in 2012. I think Bernie Sanders. And plus the ancient white guy, straight white guy thing is going to hurt him. Yeah. I think that the Obama effect is still real. Um, and, you know, they're, they're all trying to be Barack Obama, but no one other than Biden was Barack Obama's vice president for eight years. So I, I still think he has to be the front runner. I'd say Kamala Harris is up there as well. But uh, yeah, what, what do you think? The question is who can actually win this primary and who could actually win it? Who actually entirely put up a fight in different? Yeah, entirely, right, entirely different question. So yeah, I, would no, say, I, I just mean, I'd say I just Biden mean is the that. biggest. Biden is the biggest threat to the president in the general election, right? Because if you make this about personalities rather than policy, I mean, even on policies, he's further to the center than anybody else in that field based on his track record. But because of that track record, he has a much more difficult road to actually clinching a nomination when the super delegates have a lot less power than they did in 2016. You know, so if we have to pick. I, I'm still trying to figure all this out. I think, you know, Bernie's got a lot of name recognition. He's got a lot of infrastructure. He's got a lot of uh, baggage and problems as well. I think if anybody's going to harness the Obama effect and uh, simultaneously harness the Obama effect and all this far left progressive energy, the best person who has a chance of doing it is, is Harris right now. Um, but I, I think she has a, she has a much, much harder road to any putting up any sort of fight against President Trump in the general election as opposed to, to Biden, who has who actually would have appeal outside of the, you know, the 57 counties that would decide the president without the Electoral College. We can bring it all right. back. Right. You know, I, I was reading and I'm, we, we can end on this. Just one more question. And this is just off the top of my head. I wasn't planning on bringing this up, but uh, I was looking at uh, just Electoral College maps from the last like 10 different uh, presidential elections and looking how uh, how drastically they've changed. Remembering the, the the 2016 map, what states could you see flipping one way or the other? Because sometimes the map can drastically change in a short amount of time. So, like, for me, I think for the Republicans, I'll go Democrat and Republican. I think for Republicans, uh, the GOP has a decent chance of winning New Hampshire, a uh, decent chance of winning Nevada, um, possibly even Virginia. I know that would be a long shot, but with Governor mm. Black, Governor Blackface, Attorney General Blackface, uh, Lieutenant Governor Rapist, that whole thing, there might be some anti-Democrat 
But the thing to remember about the old Dominion is that we have, so we have our state level elections in off years. So the steam gasket's going to get blown off on an odd numbered year. Yeah, that, that's right. That's true. Forgot about that. And then, for, but the Democrats, I could, I think they're going to win Wisconsin. Um, you know, there's no Scott Walker there. Um, Wisconsin Republicans got absolutely shellacked uh, yeah. last year. I mean, that was that was brutal, more so than any other state. Um, they could flip Michigan. They're not going to flip Ohio. I don't even think uh, the Democrats are going to Ohio that much. Um, you saw a Republican governor get elected in November in a wave year for the Democrats. Um, against a, a, a popular candidate 20 years younger than him who outspent him. Beyond. So I, I think Ohio's safe. I think Florida's probably safe as well. Ron DeSantis has something like a 70% approval rating or something ridiculous. But So what, what states, one way or the other, do you think would flip? How, how do you see the map changing? Obviously, we're way far out, and there's not really statewide polls going on yet. But uh, what do you think could be like some shockers on a state-to-state basis in 2020? Keep an eye on Pennsylvania. Yeah. Keep an eye on Wisconsin. Yep. Um, we'll have to see how much, because what drove, so the two things that really drove Trump's success between Pennsylvania and, and Wisconsin, that, that, that unexpected flip that we saw throughout, you know, the industrial country right there was, was this, uh, it was a combination of Trump's promises on trade and jobs, as well as Hillary Clinton's outright negligence. So, we're not going to have Hillary Clinton's negligence. The Democrats are, are the Democrats are already campaigning in Wisconsin. They're, they're, right? they're so holding their convention in Milwaukee. They're holding the, yeah, they're holding yeah. the convention in Milwaukee. They're not making that same mistake twice. We'll have to see if the if if this jump started economy is enough to hold on to those gains for Trump. Um, that's where my main focus is gonna is is gonna be as far as potential flips goes. As long as DeSantis keeps doing uh, it keeps, you know, Really hammering home and lighting up the scoreboard like he's doing in Florida. I think that uh, Florida is going to be pretty safe. It's going to he's going to keep a lot of Republican energy up there. But keep an eye on everything between Pennsylvania and Wisconsin. And I believe I I don't have the numbers in front of me, but if the GOP does lose uh, Pennsylvania and Wisconsin, they would have to obviously keep Ohio. Uh, North Carolina, Florida, but they would have also pick up several. They'd have to pick up Nevada, New Hampshire, Virginia, and maybe another, because the, and uh, there's thirty something. There's thirty six electoral votes or something between Pennsylvania and Wisconsin. So they, those two states are a really big deal. And with the growth of uh, you know, and with the growth of uh, urban areas in uh, in Charlotte and Raleigh, I can tell you, my wife's from the Charlotte area in North Carolina. You know, we're we're a few election cycles away from North Carolina turning into the South Pennsylvania. I mean, we're we're it's it's getting into swing state territory, but it's it it, it gets closer every single cycle. But that's another one to on keep the, an eye on. On the flip side, though, you know, we may be a couple election cycles away from Ohio and Florida being solid red states that the GOP doesn't have to campaign that heavily and spend that much money in. They've been pouring more money into Ohio than almost any other state for my entire lifetime. And Ohio is is becoming more and more conservative by the by the day. <laughs> I mean, it's really I mean, Trump, you have to remember, Trump won Ohio, my home state, by uh, nine and a half points, which Obama won Ohio. But it was both within a point and a half. And George Bush won Ohio twice by 
uh, less than a point, I believe. Or two points the first time, a point the second time. So it is winning a swing state like Ohio by nine points is definitely encouraging. But, yeah, I agree. Uh, Wisconsin and Pennsylvania definitely uh, make me a little nervous this time around. But we'll see. We've got a long way to go. Who the hell knows what's going to happen? All right, I'll let you go, Nate. Thanks so much for jumping on here at short notice. Where can everybody find you online and check out your podcast, which is really great, uh, over at The Blaze? All right, take care, brother. No, 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 no. Give the plugs. Oh. We need the plugs. Oh, sorry. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, if you want to plug it. <laughs> no, you're <okay. laughs> Yeah, my hearing shot. Um, yeah, if you want to check me out, I'm, I'm on Twitter. I do a lot of my reporting there at Nate Hill. Check out the Capitol Fund, please, T, and check out the uh, conservative review for my uh, written coverage. All right, everybody do. It's a great show. Follow Nate on Twitter uh, for all the latest goings on on Capitol Hill. I'm Brady Leonard. I'll be back on Monday. No gimmicks.